Hello podcast listeners, it's Duncan here, begging your forgiveness. Uh, this episode of Primitive Culture has a slightly lower audio quality than you're probably used to from us. Basically what happened was Clara and I were having some trouble with our internet, so I had the bright idea that we should just phone each other and uh, record that way. Uh, and although we record locally, so the quality of the call shouldn't affect the audio that you get, I had forgotten that when you leave a telephone in the same room as uh, a microphone or a speaker or something like that, it generates a kind of unpleasant um, interference noise. So uh, my side of the conversation, you'll hear a fair bit of uh, buzzing and, and chirping and kind of general strange audio. The great Christopher Jones has done his best to apply various audio filters to the uh, podcast audio to try and clear that up, to try and improve the quality of it. So we're extremely grateful to him. But if the quality of this is not up to our usual standards, then I apologise and it's entirely my fault. And we'll be back fortnight's time with a new episode with hopefully perfect crisp audio quality. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this discussion nonetheless. Thanks a lot. Bye. This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me is Clara Cook. Hi, Clara. Hi, Duncan. How's it going? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm, I'm sweltering in the London heat again. Um, <laughs> I don't know about you. You've probably had a ser- similar experience today. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah, yeah. it's it's dark, uh, dark and hot and kind of sweaty. <laughs> it's not. It's not. Pleasant. Not a million miles away from some of the experiences we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> I suppose you know, being in confined spaces that could be either too hot or sometimes too cold. This is a very broad clue. I'm, I'm giving the listeners if they can guess it, I'll, I'll be astonished. Basically, what we're talking about um, today is NASA. We're talking about NASA and Star Trek and the relationship between NASA and Star Trek and the way that NASA is presented within Star Trek and the way that Star Trek is kind of appropriated within NASA, I suppose. And I think, Clara, you actually have a couple of sort of personal connections to NASA one way or another. Is that right? Yeah, so um, kind of strange connections, actually. Well, the first one, I would say the closest connection is my mother actually used to work at NASA. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I find it really exciting. She relates it to me in a much more sort of completely chilled out, relaxed way, because I think for her, it isn't as, it's, it's distant history for her, really. But in, 19, in the um, early 1970s, she actually worked at NASA. She didn't work in uh, Houston, in Texas. She worked um, in Washington. So they had like a, a, a branch of NASA there where they were doing a lot of the sort of mathematics and computer software work 
to actually launch people into space and launch probes into space. And she was working there as a writer and an editor, um, writing manuals for the computer software that was being used for the space program. So she's she, oh, wow. she's a writer. So yeah, so she wasn't actually creating the maths or the science that would get people into space, but she was writing the manuals for the computer software. And the, one of the reasons why this was such a big deal was because the computer that was actually generating, I guess, the information that was needed was a huge computer. She said it was like the size of a room. It was this massive, big, expensive thing. Um, and it, 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 it required so much software and so much sort of mm. knowledge that she had to, the, the, basically the actual computer scientists had to write manuals for all the sort of mechanics of it, but they needed somebody to edit those and copyright them and make sure they made sense. So that's what she mm. was doing. And this was a really big deal because obviously every time something new was discovered or developed or whatever, they had to write the manual for it. And then they also had to send it off to be printed and, they just a printing process back in the seventies was huge as well. It's like a very long winded. I mean, technology was nothing like it is now. So she said, actually, it was this incredibly big, long winded process to get these manuals produced. And she's quite blasé about the whole thing. She says that the it it wasn't actually as exciting as I think it was. <laughs> she said one of the reasons <laughs> one of the reasons why um, it wasn't so so exciting was because um, a lot of there'd been a lot of stuff in the press and obviously in the public imagination about NASA and space travel by that point. So the, the biggest, most exciting thing that she remembers is that there was uh, some, they had, I think they sent a probe out to, to Jupiter or near Jupiter. And she remembers that they started getting some of the first clear pictures of Jupiter. And she remembers at the time she was married to an astrophysicist and she, and she remembers him, that's my mother's ex-husband. And she remembers him studying the pictures of, of Jupiter and how excited he was. And she remembers everybody running around at, at the, at the, at her office, sort of looking at these pictures and they were all really excited. And, and they, they, they blew them up on a big screen up on the wall and everybody could look at them. So she remembers that as being the most exciting thing that happened at NASA while she was there. Nothing like men in space or anything like that. It was much more scientific discovery. I guess the thing is, though, with something like NASA, you know, yes, it's a huge institution. There's people doing all kinds of, you, you know, roles that maybe aren't, they're not literally the heroes flying the spaceships kind of thing. But, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the film Hidden Figures. That's a film that gives a, a real insight into some of the kind of work that's going on in the ground. You know, essentially the maths, really. And I mean, obviously in a film like that, they, they can even make maths seem quite sexy and exciting and kind of thrilling you know, down to the wire. But I mean, an awful lot of the kind of maths of the of the um, various NASA projects must have been just endlessly tedious and kind of, you know, sort of by rote almost and kind of getting all the small details right. But, you know, you have to get it all right or it doesn't work. And, you know, the stakes are very high. So presumably, you know, if your mum had introduced some kind of, <laughs> I don't know, grammatical error into one of those uh, manuals, who knows what could have happened. I like, I like to think that she could have changed the course of human history. <laughs> She could have smashed a, you know, crashed a spaceship by, <laughs> by messing up the computer one way or another. The other experience that um, I have with NASA, well, of course, my father has a lot of stories about, not, I wouldn't say his stories are so positive, actually. I think for him, he's much, oh, really? he, yeah, he's much more of a, a skeptic. Uh, he's just naturally much more, he's a journalist, he was a journalist and he's interested in philosophy. So he's just much more of a skeptical thinker. But um, he remembers watching the moon landing and he remembers being very excited about that when he was younger. But then he said, as the years went by, there were more and more sort of 
space endeavors and you know there's more and more people like trying to get to the moon and he said after a while it becomes it became he thinks in the public consciousness especially around the people that he was around they became quite bored with it so he remembers as kids that the the they the you know the i guess the local authorities or, or, or nasa itself tried to get people excited by taking chunks of moon rock touring all around different towns in america so people could see the moon rock he also says that they were given tang which was this sort of sugary orange powdered drink which apparently the astronauts drank they gave tang to like school kids and you'd get freeze-dried food i remember that i remember that freeze-dried food that was always very exciting you could get that at the science museum here did you have that as a kid yeah like freeze-dried ice cream like freeze-dried ice cream yeah, yeah 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 i don't know if kids still eat that it's probably a lot of sugar yeah 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 but, so uh, so i think it was this idea of trying to promote nasa just as like a fun exciting thing you know giving this sort of stuff to children but they, he said they would come to your school and they would give you it and it, to try and keep people excited because the american public's maybe attention was starting to wane slightly but my closest connection to nasa i suppose other than my mother is that i actually met an astronaut at the star trek convention in Birmingham in 2016, I met a guy called Alfred Worden, who uh, was a pilot on the Apollo 15 lunar mission in 1971, and he was—he's one of the only of the—he's tw- one of only 24 people to have flown to the moon. And I, like, literally was so, I was so excited to meet him. I was like, my heart was pounding. And I went up and asked him if I could ask him any questions. Funnily enough, there was not a cue to speak to him. There was like a cue to speak to, I mean, Terry Farrell or, you know, a bunch of other actors. But there wasn't a cue to speak to the astronaut. And I was really excited to talk to him. And he was totally unimpressed with me, I'll tell you. (laughs) I asked him what was space what was space like and he was like well what's anything what's anything like I asked him if he was lonely because at one point he had to go round the moon by himself and he was I think he's the only man to have been the furthest from earth he's like the only human to have been the furthest human from earth um so he's he's been the furthest basically away and he and he you know I asked him was it lonely like traveling around that side of the moon by yourself and he's like nah I had too many other, I had too too many science, like science experiments to do. He says, you're busy all day long. And it was interesting. He was interviewed at one point for, on a panel. And the interviewer, I think, was trying to sort of say, like, how did you feel when you left the atmosphere? Because I wanted to know that as well. Did it hurt, you know, when you were going through the Earth's atmosphere, like at that speed? And um, he was like, nah. He was very relaxed about the whole thing. In fact, I I think he was a little bit, a little bewildered by all the Star Trek fans. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> really i bet well that must have been it must have been kind of a shock although interestingly i mean i don't know about the astronauts themselves but obviously a lot of other people who worked at nasa were star trek fans certainly in the, in the later years but it's interesting that you talk about this astronaut who seems quite it sounds almost a bit sort of jaded by it in some ways whereas i suppose what we think of is this real um i mean if you if you think of I don't know, someone like jonathan archer in, in enterprise quite sort of wide-eyed kind of uh, exciting heroic you know really kind of up for the challenge all these kind of things but i don't know whether partly that's just to tie into what your father was saying about sort of it was all downhill from the moon landing onwards and i suppose the apollo program was the one that that probably captured the public imagination in the united states but also around the world really i mean everyone in every country was watching that moon landing you know maybe after that 
NASA never quite managed to sort of get back to that peak again. But of course, what's interesting from a Star Trek point of view is that, you know, Star Trek debuted in 1966, the, the moon landers in 1969, you know, they were very much kind of in sync in a sense. And I suppose if we start off maybe by looking at um, the original series, there are a few episodes of the original series that kind of tie into that contemporary history one way or another. We've got In Tomorrow's Yesterday, you've got the, um, the pilot who talks about his disappointment that he wasn't selected for the um, for the Apollo program. Uh, and, and then there's this kind of irony that because he gets beamed up to the Enterprise, <laughs> he actually gets to go into space and you know before the rest of them and gets that whole experience, even if he can't talk about it. You've got in Assignment Earth, there's this, um, I mean, it's all about this, this sort of nuclear warhead. I don't, I don't quite understand how exactly how it's meant to sort of fit into real world history, assuming that it is, but it's certainly very much in the present and it's very much the kind of, all the kind of visual iconography and everything is very much the kind of current NASA uh, sort of stuff being put up on the screen. And then again, in Return to Tomorrow, in that famous speech that Kirk gives, the um, Risk is Our Business speech, which I have to say always reminds me, I think there's, there's, there's a kind of link there's always been a kind of link between Kennedy and Kirk somehow. And of course, Kennedy gave his big speech, you know, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. His speech about going to the moon. And Kirk's speech in that episode, I think, kind of echoes that in a sense, because he's basically saying the same thing. You know, he's saying we've done all these great heroic things. And, and one of them is, you know, is the Apollo program. We, we went to the moon. And of course, at the time that the episode was broadcast, we hadn't gone to the moon. I mean, that was kind of I mean, it was, I suppose you could say it was a fair prediction because obviously that's, that was the intention. So the viewers at the time would kind of buy into it that in the future that's, that's how people would see it. But it's almost quite a gamble in a sense, basically, you know, writes, putting dialogue in, in the voice of, of someone in the future, saying that this, this great endeavour, which, you know, hasn't yet come to fruition, is going to be a great success. And kind of Star Trek there sort of, I don't know, almost nailing its colours to the mast and saying, yes, the Apollo programme was a great success, even though it hasn't sort of, it hasn't reached that. Yeah, I mean, whether it's intentional or not, and I think at that stage, I think it was, at least had to be partly intentional, it's giving a boost to the American space programme. But what's also funny about the original series is that there is a Russian on the bridge. I mean, there's Chekhov mm. right there, you know, and, he, and he's a helmsman, which, is, which indicates he's a pilot or at least has some piloting abilities. And that kind of goes completely against NASA because NASA at that point was in this space race with the Russians, you know, the cosmonauts. So mm. that's a bit of a, a strange uh, contradiction there in terms because if you think about it, Star Trek is a very American show. And there's, mm. you know, we'll go on to talk about other series as well, but there's lots of links to Star Trek episodes to scenes in star trek to like the ships and the, and the design to the names uh, of the different ships in, in star trek mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. the american space program but it's star trek's like this idealized version of nasa almost because except that i suppose they are more perhaps more with a slightly more militaristic but they're this idealized version of nasa because of the fact that they do have these different nationalities involved in the space program in starfleet and I guess we'll get onto that because that's something that obviously the International Space Station's done. But and later missions obviously have been very much a joint international effort. But it's interesting at that point that Roddenberry chose to have Chekhov on the bridge and Chekhov help mm. helping Sulu to fly the ship because at, at that point in history they were trying to put American pilots in space to beat Russian pilots. So it's an interesting kind of contradiction. Definitely, definitely, and I mean. 
I suppose as much as in later decades, you know, uh, NASA started, I mean, it, within the, the scope of Americans, they started having women going into space, they started having African-American astronauts and so on. If you look at those kind of the early period of, you know, of NASA's missions, it's all, you know, real kind of all-American white guys. Do you know what I mean? There's a certain type and it's quite, it's quite a sort of specific, it is the kind of Jonathan Archer type. I mean, that is absolutely the kind of, archetypal NASA astronaut in a sense and in, in those early days that is you know that is totally what you got in a sense so so you're right it is interesting you know that Star Trek could kind of combine this sort of an idealized version of NASA maybe in the future with this kind of UN in space and kind of you know almost foreshadowing things like the International Space Station the, the other thing that's interesting about the original series is um and I did an episode quite a few months back now uh, with Aaron Harvey, our art director, talking about some of the design influences. And he was telling me about some of the design influences from kind of NASA projects and from kind of contemporary projects to do with space exploration actually found their way into the design of the Enterprise. So things like Spock's viewer is actually very similar to a, a device that was being developed around the same time. Um, some of the kind of iconography around like the Delta Shield and these sort of things were kind of you know feeding from that and then these things kind of feed back into each other because later on in kind of star trek history you have mike akuda designing mission patches for actual nasa missions as opposed to just you know fictitious patches for kind of fictitious you know star trek kind of nasa history missions and so on and the kind of i suppose the history of star trek and nasa is one that definitely it sort of bleeds back and forth to a certain extent because after the original series came off the air, after the original series went into syndication and became this big thing, and you know the fans went wild, and, and it, you know it became this kind of cultural phenomenon in a sense, that obviously fed into the space program and fed into kind of inspiring people to the point where at NASA they would you know be naming their computers after Star Trek characters. I mean, the, apparently the the computer on the shuttle I think was called Spock, and you, you know a lot of people working for NASA were inspired by Star Trek one way or another. Though obviously not that astronaut that you spoke to. I mean, he was at a Star Trek convention, so he must he must appreciate <laughs> science fiction at least a little. I think it was just interesting because either the, that or the paycheck. Yeah, or the paycheck. <laughs> uh, actually, I think he was trying to get people interested in science. Is what he was trying to do. Right. Okay. And actually, I I think the American public is very interested in science. I'll emphasize the Star Trek convention was in Birmingham in the UK, but mm. in terms of NASA, the American public is very interested in science, and, and I think even more so than a lot of other countries. And people who are interested in science fiction generally are also interest, quite interested in science. So I can see how NASA might want to make this connection. They might want to have a, have a relationship with science fiction or with, with Star Trek in particular. It's funny that you should mention about the design because I, I have some Star Trek t-shirts, but I also have a t-shirt mm. that has the NASA logo on it. And that's mm -hmm. one of my favorite t-shirts and I wear it around all the time. And I routinely see people in London wearing t-shirts that have the NASA logo on them. I have a, I have a mug with the NASA logo on it. And I mean, I, I don't work at NASA. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I'm probably never going to work at NASA and I doubt I'll ever go into space, but there is something iconic about that yeah. logo. And heroic as well. And heroic. Yeah. And I often thought that actually the panels in the original series bridge look a little bit like mm. some of the panels that you see, you know, ground control basically, Mm, where mm. in NASA where people are flicking switches and turning dials and looking at tiny tiny little panels or little screens during some sort of crisis or hopefully not a crisis and speaking mm. to astronauts while they're actually in space so 
I, I can see how the design is definitely linked in the original series with the actual technology that was being used by NASA and by astronauts at the time. That's a very interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. Something about the design of the bridge. I mean, although obviously it's different insofar as you've got this big chair in the middle and this sense of a real command structure, and you know, it is a bridge on a military vessel. But you're right, I suppose, that the, the, the way that there's all these different specialists all around and they're all sort of feeding into one project and the fact they've got this great giant screen at the front of the room that everyone is, that is there kind of linked to the outside. So it's interesting in a way, although they are in space, they are the spacecraft, you know, they're not like any spacecraft that we've ever built, which is quite cramped and quite kind of, you know, people strapped into seats. You know, if you think of um, Zephyr and Cochrane in the Phoenix, that's the kind of model of like, you know, what space travel is like if, if you're the one on the ship. But but you're right, in a sense, the, the bridge of a Starfleet ship actually has much more in common sort of architecturally and so on with one of those kind of mission control rooms. One of the things that's always surprised me about Star Trek, though, is that there isn't a a firm view or understanding of a, a ground control part of, of Starfleet. And I think that's one of the things when I was researching for this podcast and I was um, viewing and reading about interpretations of NASA in popular culture, like say, for instance, Apollo 13, The Martian, uh, and, and even more recent stuff, I mean, the right stuff, even more recent stuff, which is like, uh, there's a, a documentary, uh, sort of documentary drama series on Netflix called Mars, which is sort of all about the future of the space program and the first manned mission to Mars. There's a lot of drama that's also set at ground control on Earth. You know, the people who are supporting the astronauts in space. And that's something you don't actually see in Star Trek. We're very much almost very much almost always on a ship or with the, the the astronauts or with Starfleet, with the Starfleet officers and the actual ships. And I've always thought that was strange and they don't really show people basically on planets much at all except for planets they visit mm. and why do you think they kind of didn't do that in the 60s they didn't have like a starfleet ground control kind of mm. whereas i suppose if you think of something like i don't know thunderbirds or something like like that those kind of broadly contemporary kind of stories where there might be a space element i feel there was much more of that kind of feeding into it i suppose star trek does it the times when they do it is when someone's test, if someone is testing a new vessel. So we get it twice that I can think of. We get Troy in first contact, basically takes on the ground controller role and puts on a headset and does the countdown and everything. Um, and then again in, in Enterprise, we get Trip doing the same thing in first flight. But the weird thing in both those cases, uh, particularly with Trip, in, in first flight, it seems like one person can do that job, which is certainly almost the opposite of, you know, if you think of something like Apollo 13, you've got the, it's Ed Harris, isn't it, in Apollo 13, who's the kind of ground controller and is he's very heroic himself. You know, he's this great leader of this huge room full of people. Everyone's got their own role. Everyone's got their own job. You know, he is like the captain of the starship, almost taking information from all these people and making the decisions and so on. The idea that like one guy in a room with a headset can basically do it is it sort of feels very different. So I suppose even when Star Trek does engage with that, it's maybe in a slightly minimal way if you know what i mean they're, they're, they're certainly not milking it for the drama potential that there is in um you know it, i mean in a film like hidden figures or in a film like apollo 13 or something where you you really get the sense that yes there are these astronauts out there in space doing these heroic things but there are also these other people you know whatever they're doing maths they're doing engineering they're doing these these kind of other less kind of conventionally heroic things but at the same time they are brilliant inspiring people themselves i mean you know, if you think of in Apollo 13, there's that scene where 
they suddenly have to work out uh, using the equipment on board on board the capsule or whatever it is that they're in they've got to solve this problem and get this you know square peg into a round hole basically and they've you know they've got half an hour to go into a room it's, it's like some kind of i don't know bizarre sort of puzzle that they've got to solve almost and all these brilliant minds are kind of working overtime to try to try and solve it so i guess in a lot of those kind of stories you do get this sense of the fact that the mission control people can be heroic in the same way as the well, not the same way as the astronauts can be, but in their own way, and that that is part of it. You know, you can't um, you can't fly a spaceship, just, you know, without them. In a sense, um, you know, e- even to the extent that you can fly a plane without them, you kind of need all of that support in order to have any chance of success. And I think you're right; that's not something that Star Trek really touches on. Maybe because a lot of the time they're away from planets, you know, they're in deep space or whatever, they can't really be relying to the same extent on Earth, but. You know, Enterprise, the first season of Enterprise, the original plan for it was that they were going to do a whole season set on Earth. So I wonder whether if that had been the case, we would have seen a bit more of that interaction and a bit more of the kind of challenges and the kind of drama involved in launching a ship rather than just, you know, okay, you release the clamps and and set off and then you're kind of on your own. I think it's because the ships in Star Trek are so advanced. So one of the Mm. things interesting that I found when when I was reading about early sort of manned missions into space was that how very little the original astronauts were doing because in the first few manned missions out they were literally just being shot up into space doing an orbit and being brought back down again and the majority of the mm. actual sort of control was happening from ground control because the spacecrafts themselves were so primitive but obviously in, in, the, Ent- in the enterprise whether it's the original series enterprise or whether it's voyager what you have actually is not only the spacecraft, but you have ground control actually in the spacecraft, don't you? So you're right. Ed Harris's character in Apollo 13 is pretty much Captain Kirk. At one point in Apollo 13, everyone at ground control looks at Ed Harris's character and they're like, what are we going to do? They all look at him. They're looking to him for leadership. And it's like on the bridge mm. of the Enterprise when something goes wrong, everyone looks at Kirk and you know he's got to pick up the slack. It's interesting as well because... The more primitive the spacecraft and the less that it can do being, you know, pumped out into space means the more kind of developed the ground control has to be and the bigger the crew has to be on the mm. ground, on the ground, sort of controlling things and directing things and problem solving. And there's a new series on Netflix called Lost in Space, which is a reboot of the original, I think it was set in the 60s, was it, it was originally the 60s uh, Lost mm. in Space. And there's an episode in it, spoilers for anyone who's watching it, but there's an episode in it where in order to basically to save this these bunch of people on, on a planet in order to actually pr- succeed in a mission a a very advanced spaceship has to be stripped down to being mm-hmm. a very primitive spaceship and what they're doing mm-hmm. is they're having to take something that's very technologically advanced that they can actually fly off the planet into space and make it something very primitive so that they can basically get up there and have enough fuel to get up there and save save of the day i don't want to give too much away no don't spoil it i haven't got around to lost in space yet <laughs> sorry well, i was supposing much but just to the point that that's right. the one no, you you talked in very vague terms that's that's all right I can... but one of the characters sort of says in order to actually complete this we've got to basically go back in time and they're not literally going back in time it's like yeah, yeah. you know they've got to run an experiment where they've got to pretend they're going to launch into space like original astronauts so she says something like you know mm. welcome to the 1960s and mm. it's, it's it's an entirely different kind of space travel because the person who's being 
basically shot up into the atmosphere is having to rely on everyone else down the planet to make sure that they've got everything right. right. So that's why Star Trek's slightly different, I suppose, in that context, because ground control and the space spacecraft mm. are combined. What you were describing reminds me very much of The Martian as well. Um, I don't know if you've read that book or, or seen the film. Yeah. That at the end of The Martian, in order to get off Mars, he has to use he has to use something to get into orbit that was not intended to be used to get him up into orbit. And in order to do it, they work out that they can do it, but they have to strip it down to the extent that they they remove almost everything from this kind of module. They remove his ability to control it himself, which is quite controversial because you know the character, the Matt Damon character in the film, or the, you know the character in the book, is you know, a bit horrified. They're basically taking control out of him, but they have to get the weight down. They remove the kind of windows at the front and say, oh, we're just going to stick a tarpaulin over the front of it and fly it up into space. So again, they're like stripping this thing down to the most basic level just to get it light enough that they can take off. And as a result, he loses really any control over it. He becomes, you know, just a sort of thing to be transported, which is interesting because when you look at the the Mercury program, actually there was a kind of controversy around that, that, you know, they had these kind of, pilots these test pilots and so on who were involved in the program but there was a kind of resentment that really they weren't doing anything they weren't flying these things they were kind of they were overqualified is one way of looking at it and in the film the right stuff there's there's that bizarre scene where they they start talking about whether they could get acrobats to do the job or you know could they get who could they get to do the job does it need to be someone who knows anything about flying because you know really they're not going to be doing that but, but maybe if we just want to sort of move on slightly from thinking about the original series to thinking about the original series movies, because I think, you know, by that time, obviously, Star Trek had been off the air for a period of time. Star Trek fandom had grown. I mean, that was really the period where kind of Star Trek fandom sort of exploded and became this real kind of cultural phenomenon. Um, and that obviously had fed into NASA in various ways with people, you know, going to work there and people there being quite inspired by Star Trek. And then we see, you know, when Star Trek kind of returns in the motion picture, we have this story which, you know, begins as this very sort of mysterious uh, science fiction futuristic story and then ends with this quite explicit link to NASA and a link to, you know, albeit a fictional probe because there weren't really six Voyager probes. I think there were only two. But at the same time, something that is very recognisably part of our own history. And also, I suppose, you know, projecting that there would be another four of them kind of doing similar kinds of things is not you know is barely science fiction it's kind of you know that's sort of in the near future in a sense so the fact that they you know that the whole the mystery of that film is resolved when they realize that actually what they've been dealing with all this time is a nasa probe and not some kind of alien intelligence it's interesting though because yeah again strange contradiction between star trek and nasa because or maybe it's star trek's feelings about nasa because mm. in the motion picture, the probe, Vija, 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 one of those, Vija, let's call it Vija. It actually is a destructive element. I mean, there's some sympathy mm. and empathy, obviously, applied to it because that, I mean, that's what Spock's kind of there in that position for is to apply empathy to the probe, like, we're supposed to mm -hmm. sort of care. The probe has become intelligent and is looking for its origins. But it, it does kill people. You know, it does destroy mm. things. And similarly with the uh, later episode of Voyager, which I know we'll talk about, there is a probe in Friendship 1, mm. I believe it is. There's a probe and Friendship 1 also wreaks destruction. And obviously these mm. probes aren't knowingly doing this, but it's this idea that these early desires to explore the universe... Mm 
that are expressed by NASA sending out probes or a, or a space program, and we, we presume it's NASA in the Star Trek mm. universe, have led to Spock existing, you know, have led to Voyager existing, have, have, led, have led to the Enterprise existing, have led to this great, glorious space-dwelling future. But they've also led to destruction and disaster as well. So, mm. And there's a very interesting line that Janeway says at the end of Friendship One. She says something like, you know, exploration. I mean, I think Chakotay says something like exploration is, is a really, curiosity or exploration is, is something that's really, really desirable. It's really hard to, you know, mm. to resist. And she says something like, but mm. no one should have, like, no, no one should have to die for it. Basically, no lives should be lost, whether it's mm. millions or whether it's one. And at the end of the episode, somebody has died, you know, and it's because they went and looked for this probe and this whole mm. world of people, this, the whole world's been destroyed, you know. So, I'm never sure what to think about that. Like the motion picture, I'm never sure if it's actually promoting NASA, if mm. it's trying to encourage us to be curious, or if it's kind of a warning. And I've always been confused about that. Every single time I've watched it, I'm like, am I supposed to feel good about this probe? Am I supposed to feel good that NASA <laughs> set this probe out, you know, many, many years ago? Because if they didn't, mm. if NASA didn't continue doing this, and if first contact hadn't happened and all that kind of thing then you wouldn't have characters like spock and kirk and you wouldn't have the enterprise but at the same time mm. there's been a lot of disasters as well and they, you could say the same for nasa yeah every single time there's a disaster in space and people die uh, there's a renewed public interest in the space program it's almost it's, mm. it's a controversial thing to say but it's almost one of the best things for nasa pr if something bad happens mm. Definitely, definitely. No, I, I think you can you can certainly make that argument. I mean, maybe that's something that we can come on to talk about in a little bit when we look at the shuttle program, for example, which is one of the big disasters. And, and maybe if we talk a little bit more about Apollo 13 and, and indeed Apollo 1. I'm just thinking in terms of these Voyager probes, though, I think I think you're right. You know, Friendship 1 is absolutely another story about a Voyager probe. They can't call it a Voyager probe because they call the show Voyager, so they have to call it something else. But it's like, it's so obvious that that's what it's about. You know, it's playing the classical music. It's it's spreading this kind of noble message of humanity reaching out to make friends. I suppose there is that sense, you know, one of the anxieties that we sort of see in science fiction is that is that kind of noble impulse to reach out and make friends with aliens actually an error of judgment because what happens if the aliens that you make friends with you know that you, that you contact get your message and decide to come and you know are not particularly friendly and i think it's interesting that we see those probes have absolutely captured the public imagination it's not just in star trek i mean i'm thinking in the x-files for example there was an episode in the early second season i think maybe the, the premiere of the second season was all about this kind of um you know, the, the Voyager probes and the kind of material that was on them. Uh, the film Contact, I think, had quite a lot on that. There's something about the kind of um, the innocence of it somehow, the idea of sort of trying to represent our civilization, trying to kind of send something out there. Even if you think of the inner light, I, mean, I suppose the inner light is almost a version of the same thing. I was just looking, I looked up on NASA's website, the history of the, of the Voyager probes. They were put together by a committee chaired by Carl Sagan, and they included 115 images, a variety of natural sounds made by surf, wind and thunder, birds, whales. So, you know, who knows, that could lead into Star Trek Four again. I mean, you know, maybe <laughs> that probe was in response to a Voyager probe as well. There's no end to the damage they've been doing. Uh, and then they added musical selections from different cultures and eras, spoken greetings from Earth people in 55 languages and printed messages from President Carter and the UN Secretary General. I mean, there is this sort of definite sense with those probes of trying to, represent the best of humanity somehow it's a very star trek 
spirit that it's done in. Do you know what I mean? It's it's quite idealistic. It's quite sort of, it's reaching out the hand of friendship, as Zephyrin Cochrane says. And yet at the same time, as you say, what we see repeatedly are these stories in which that turns out to have been a terrible mistake or it leads to kind of unforeseen consequences. I mean, I think in the Friendship One story, it's kind of, it's a bit unfair, really, that we get blamed for, you know, this planet that has has taken the technology to heart and screwed themselves over. And, you know, <laughs> I, I don't really think that's that's in any way, you know, NASA's fault or, or whatever, you know, that that should happen. That's That clearly wasn't the intention behind it. Uh, so to me, that scene between Janeway and Chakotay is a little bit heavy-handed, a little bit kind of hard to swallow. But I think you're right from a kind of creative point of view. It's interesting that whenever we have a story about one of these probes, it's a story where the probe has caused untold horror, basically, inadvertently. And I sort of wonder what that says about it, because obviously they seem to represent the better part of our nature somehow. Do you know what I mean? They seem to represent us trying to put our best side forward into the universe and what does it mean that then then whenever we do that, what we get back is is something awful? Well, it's kind of like Pandora's box, really, isn't it? I mean, mm, mm. you know, it's that curiosity that killed the cat. I don't know, there's two, two cliches there for you. You know, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> like it's the idea mm. that like we're going to go seeking something that that we don't know about, you know, I mean. It's, it's it's going where no man's gone before, but like Seven of Nine says in Friendship One, if the Borg had picked up this probe before anyone else, then the human race would mm. be all assimilated by now. So, and she's quite yeah. she's quite matter of yeah. fact about it, isn't she? I agree with you. I think that there's this kind of weird contradiction between wanting to go out and and, and discover things, but also finding out that that actually there is a lot of danger out there. And that is something that does happen in, in, in some of these interpretations of NASA, that actually space is not made for human life. I mean, there is no planet in our solar system or, or, in, or nearby, actually, nearby to us that can support human life like Earth can. I did actually go see an astronaut speak a few years ago at um, mm. a science centre in, in London. It was an astronaut called Mike Massimino. He talked a lot about the technology that he used. He talked about the studying that he had to do while he was at NASA. He talked about what it felt like to go up into space. But he actually got very emotional when he talked about Earth. He got more emotional talking about Earth than he did about space. He said, when you're out there and you look back on the Earth, you realize what a heaven it is. You look back and the Earth is the most beautiful thing out there. It's more beautiful than almost any other star or any other planet mm. or any, anything else that you can see out there. You look back and it's not just because it's home and you have an, like an, an association with it. It's because it is so perfectly designed to support us and, in, and, and because it is truly unique. And he did also say when you look back in the other direction, away from Earth, you see this huge darkness and it's beautiful and there's mm. stars and there's the moon and everything. But he says it just sucks. It's like this expanse of loneliness and it's hard to believe mm. there is anything else out there. Nobody asked him if he thought there were aliens. No one asked him that. But mm. I mean, I think a lot of people who do work in science and in the space programs around the world probably do actually think that there is intelligent life out there somewhere. But it's mm. it's quite possible. It's very, very, very far away and very, very different mm. from what we imagine it would be. So there's this idea that if you send a probe out there and, you know, like the idea that somebody's going to pick it up and listen to Vivaldi and look at pictures of, mm. you know, anatomical pictures of men and women and, and, and then sort of somehow digest the information and come and shake hands with us, it's probably quite unlikely. 
<laughs> not in that mm. way anyway. Mm. So I can see how people, although they're excited about it, there is this kind of like idea that perhaps maybe where is the scientific gain in it compared to a lot of the other scientific work that NASA does, like a lot of the other tests that they do in mm. space, you know, a lot of the things that where they try and find out to see if they can grow plants in space and the different kind of mm. materials, you know, spacewalks, that kind of thing. A lot of the science that NASA does that isn't as engaging to the public as searching for aliens or landing on Mars or landing on the moon, sure. you know, so the, but to keep the public engaged mm. and to keep them excited, do you have to have these big goals? And that's absolutely a big part of it. I mean, I would say with these probes, there's something they, they almost remind me of a time capsule. You know, if you make a time capsule and you sort of put all these precious things in, you try to represent yourself to the future and so on. And the idea behind the time capsule is always that, you know, in 50 years or 100 years or whenever it is that you're supposed to open the capsule, it's going to provide some kind of valuable record to the historians of the future looking back who, you know, who kind of weren't expecting that. And, and, and maybe that's true. And maybe, you know, when the time capsules that we've been building uh, and putting together do get dug up, they will fascinate future historians. The only thing is there's probably a record of what goes in them anyway. So it's a bit of a kind of fiction, the idea that you're sort of trying to preempt archaeology. But I sort of wonder whether in a way we do it more for ourselves, more that the kind of act of trying to decide what represents us, how do we want to represent ourselves, is kind of important sort of as, a, as an end in itself almost. And I suppose it ties into very much in some ways what you were saying, what this astronaut was saying, you know, going into space, having this kind of epiphany about the Earth, the beauty of the Earth, having this sense of how precious it is in that kind of void of space. And, you know, we're familiar with that. We're familiar with the idea of the Earthrise experience. Basically. Captain Picard talks about it in Insurrection. He says it was the moment in his life that was a perfect moment in time, was when he first saw the Earth from outer space. And, you know, we've seen the pictures that had taken... I think it was the was it the Apollo 8 mission. It was before they landed on the moon, but it was it was when they were kind of uh, orbiting the moon. And so you have the moon in the foreground and the Earth in the background. And just the power of getting that perspective on the Earth where you're seeing it absolutely, you know, not just from space, but from another uh, heavenly body, you know, you know, from the outside and being able to look back on it and really put into perspective, you know, the kind of the wars and the conflict and the kind of day-to-day troubles and struggles of of human life and get a sort of different perspective on it and i suppose all these things tie into the kind of emotional power of the space program and the emotional power you know which is is very much wrapped up in nasa and you know and in some ways with star trek because it is that same kind of idealistic idea of you know bettering ourselves looking for the kind of best future trying to kind of move beyond the petty squabbles of the past or the present I wonder whether now might be a good time to sort of look a bit more at this kind of period of quite intense sort of interaction between NASA and Star Trek. And I suppose that is the kind of period really leading into the shuttle program. So, you know, we kind of had after the Apollo program, maybe there was a bit of a dip for a while. And then there was this real attempt to sort of reinvigorate public interest in space with the space shuttle. You know, the fact that the shuttle was able to to launch into space and then land again kind of gave it a kind of excitement. And of course, Star Trek was very instrumental in that because the first space shuttle was originally going to be called the Constitution. And there was a massive letter writing campaign, just like the letter writing campaign that got Star Trek back on the air. Uh, there was a massive letter writing campaign to rename the space shuttle and call it the Enterprise. And so it was named the Enterprise. And apparently when it was wheeled out for its kind of first public appearance, they were playing the original series theme tune. And, you know, you've seen those photos with the cast of the original series all there for this kind of event. So there was this real kind of attempt to incorporate Star Trek's sort of fictitious history with NASA's real history 
in the same way as we see in later shows, you know, the the space shuttle appears as one of the kind of antecedents of the the futuristic enterprises. You know, there's this sense that there's a kind of a lineage of of design and of ships and of vessels that kind of goes from you know the HMS Enterprise, the the boat, all the way through the the space shuttle Enterprise, through to well, I suppose the NX01, and then and then through to Kirk's Enterprise and so on. But there's definitely this idea of the two sort of cultural phenomenons almost working together. And it's what um, Constance Penley, uh, in her book NASA Trek, calls NASA Trek. And basically, her, her sort of, her idea in that book, we mentioned it briefly before, Clara, when we were talking about slash fiction, because a large section of her book is about the fans and the slash fiction and the way they were kind of reinventing Star Trek. But her the title of the book is NASA slash Trek or NASA Trek. And it's kind of the idea that in the same way as the fans envisage this sort of sexual relationship between Kirk and Spock with a slash in between that is kind of an imagined fantasy that somehow NASA and Star Trek are in a similar kind of uh, almost sort of kinky <laughs> sort of mutually beneficial relationship that that is never quite publicly acknowledged uh, and that is you know sort of not part of the mainstream narrative but at the same time they're they're kind of feeding into each other. I'll just read you a line from the, from this book because I think it's quite interesting and, and Constance Penley I should add is quite negative about NASA generally. She's very critical of NASA in terms of their safety record, in terms of decisions that are made, in terms of their kind of failure to live up to some of their goals in terms of in, in terms of capturing the public imagination. And she definitely sees Star Trek as kind of bolstering NASA during these years. But this is what she has to say. She says, the stuffy space agency is aided by an increasingly symbolic merging with its hugely popular fictional twin. Together, they form a powerful cultural icon. And that's what she calls NASA Trek. Um, and I'm just thinking, you know, in terms of the shuttle program, you know, up to the point sort of leading up to the, the, the real turning point of the shuttle program, which was the challenge of disaster. And we can come on in a minute and sort of talk about how that impacted on Star Trek and how that was kind of dealt with as a kind of big, bigger cultural event. But but obviously that kind of period of the development of the space shuttle program seems to be the period where NASA and Star Trek were almost working together like never before somehow. Well, yeah, I mean, at this point in time, I think, like, I mean, before then even, but definitely at this point in time, NASA had become like an aspect of popular culture itself. Do you know what I mean? So it, was, it wasn't mm. just like a, mm. a scientific organization. It actually became like a popular culture identity. So it sort of fits with the fact that it would be connected or twinned with Star Trek, which it was a Star Trek was a science fiction franchise. And if NASA, it becomes a, uh, part of popular culture then it's definitely an object that's open to cultural criticism which means that mm -hmm. people could then start criticizing nasa's pr you know i mean not just not mm -hmm. just nasa itself as a scientific organization why are we spending all this much money what are we getting from these scientific endeavors you know are we just sending people into space and it's so dangerous you know there's so many ways to die in space so many ways to die in mm -hmm. space you know and there is that argument, why don't we just send unmanned probes? Because you can get a lot of the scientific data from unmanned probes, and it's a lot safer mm. for human beings. Star Trek's always had this kind of American pioneer spirit, you know, like, I guess like wagon train to the stars, you know, sort of mm. like the sort of explorers, pioneers going out there. Um, and, and in a way, NASA kind of fits that as well. So it's sort of like mm. standing up, America sort of standing up on its own and, you know, kind of exploring... And it feeds straight into the idea of Star Trek and space exploration. But then, of course, that does go wrong, doesn't it? 
like you're saying, mm. it, well, it's, it, go, yeah. it can go horrifically wrong. And there is the, the right aspects. I mean, Constance um, in her book is, is quite clear about how some of the stuff that exists in Star Trek doesn't really exist in NASA. Although she's pretty harsh about the original series as well when it comes to gender equality. And she's quite clear that there mm. actually there could have been female astronauts much earlier on. Mm. You know, I mean, there were female, female um, pilots who could have been the right stuff you know they could have been some of the first humans yeah. in space and valentina okay. tereshkova was who's the first woman in space uh was a cosmonaut so in mm. russia they you know the, the russians sent up a woman in space you know, wonder why they didn't send a female astronaut much earlier some of the female astronauts were well, one particular macy jemison who was one of the first ever i think she might have been the first ever african but well, she was the first ever ever african american woman to travel into space she and she went mm. aboard the space shuttle Endeavour, so she was going aboard space shuttles. Mm. She said that she was inspired as a little girl by watching Star Trek. I don't think mm. I've ever read that she was inspired by watching the men on the moon. Do you know what I mean? she was... That's interesting. And specifically Ahura, I mean, she credits Nichelle Nichols. And Nichelle Nichols in particular, of the Star Trek cast, I think is the one who's done the most work for NASA in terms of kind of PR and kind of... Um, you know, boosting the kind of public profile of NASA. And definitely, I think for, for Mae Jemison, Michelle Nichols was the inspiration, you know, in the same way, ironically, that, you know, we hear Whoopi Goldberg saying, oh, well, I became an actress uh, because of Michelle Nichols and ended up on Star Trek. You know, Mae Jemison became an astronaut because of Michelle Nichols and ended up on Star Trek. And so there's definitely that kind of sense that, you know, Star Trek was inspiring people. And of course, we hear it, you know, these days, you know, they talk about the Scully effect with the X-Files, the, the impact that the character of Dana Scully had on women going into medicine, going into, you know, STEM fields, basically. Uh, and the same thing happened with Voyager. Of course, you know, you had Captain Janeway. You also have Belana Torres, you know, as an engineer. And maybe to some extent, I don't know, Seven of Nine quite had the same <laughs> effect or not. But certainly in those kind the of quest you, for the presentation of Janeway as a, well, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> certainly um, Janeway as this kind of, you know, brilliant female scientist had a kind of an impact there. Um, and certainly Star Trek has always kind of fed into NASA's PR in some ways. But it's interesting thinking about the shuttle program and maybe moving on to talk about the Challenger disaster. Because the whole story of Challenger was a story of PR, you know, good PR, bad PR, sort of crisis management PR. I mean, quite aside from the kind of awful story of what actually happened, there's the whole story about how it's kind of spun. And one of the things that Constance Penley is quite critical about NASA for is the whole teacher in space program to begin with. And the fact that they chose this teacher, Kristen McAuliffe, who... Constance Penley basically describes her. She says all the best she had going for her was her representative mediocrity. In other words, she was not, she didn't have the right stuff. She wasn't kind of one of these great heroic people. She wasn't particularly clever. She wasn't particularly anything. She was very much a sort of every woman. And she actually contrasts that with Mae Jemison, who before becoming an astronaut was a medical doctor, who is fluent in six languages, who's also an artist, who's a real, you know, Mae Jemison could absolutely be a character in a Star Trek series. Do you know what I mean? She's the kind of Captain Picard. She's someone with, you know, a lot of skills, a lot of ability, you know, the smartest person in the room kind of thing. Kristen McAuliffe, the first teacher in space, certainly the way Constance Penley sees it, was kind of a nice teacher, but pretty, you know, not not really an exceptional person in any way. And it's interesting that, you know, she sees that as very much part of kind of NASA's attempt to, I suppose, sort of humanise the space programme to kind of make it feel 
sort of normal and kind of not exactly every day but to kind of bridge the gap between these kind of heroic characters who are doing this kind of you know literally otherworldly kind of activity and and the rest of us and to make it relatable and particularly you know they chose a teacher because they wanted to bring the space program back to the public attention because this you know the interest that there had been during the apollo program had kind of waned they wanted to bring it back into schools and you know when that space shuttle disaster happened millions of children around america were watching it live on tv because they were watching you, you know they'd been primed to to have this this sort of educational experience with this teacher going into space, which is why it kind of traumatised a whole nation, a whole sort of generation of children. And I mean, I'm, I think, a little bit young to remember that, but I remember going to America, you know, a few years after it happened and the kind of, you know, just picking up on some of the kind of sort of cultural power of that because I'd, I'd spent a, a term at a school in the States and there were, I think they were kind of making commemorative coins for the Challenger and stuff at that point. They were kind of into the kind of memorialization of it. But the other thing that's interesting is, you know, that Constance Penley talks about, and she talks, going back to the the, the fire in the, the first Apollo mission that killed the astronauts there as well, is the extent to which NASA also tries to spin these disasters and to try and sort of minimise the impact of them. So you had that famous speech that Ronald Reagan gave after the Challenger disaster. Amazing speech. They slipped the surly bonds of Earth and touched the face of God. You know, really kind of trying to make something heroic out of this catastrophe, you know, human uh, and you know, institutional catastrophe. In fact, as we know, you know, it's not really true. It didn't launch up into space and explode. Their capsule fell down to Earth. They didn't die till it came back and hit the sea, I think. You know, it was a slow and and, um, awful process. It wasn't a brief kind of painless death. And the same thing with the Apollo 1 astronauts, the ones who died on the launch pad. You know, Constance Penny goes into some detail about how NASA liked to pretend that it was all very quick and that, you know, they, there was this very quick fire and they died almost instantly. And in fact, they have tapes of them, you know, awful uh, tapes would be to listen to of these people suffering and screaming and, you know, taking quite some time to die in that situation. And in all these situations, NASA is very wary of sharing that information. And we see it in The Martian, in the film The Martian, where they actually, they don't, and in the book as well, they, they don't realize that the guy is still alive and the reason they don't realize is they don't want to uh put their satellite cameras on the place where where he was because they know that they they're legally obliged to release their imagery and they don't want to release images of his dead body and they assume that he's dead you know because the the assumption based on what's happened is that he's been killed and then as a result it takes them you know that much longer to deduce that actually um he's survived and that he needs rescuing and then there's this whole interesting thing about how, and they talk about this in The Martian, they talk about it again in Apollo 13, once the disaster strikes and there's the potential to to save the day, suddenly everyone becomes interested again. You know, you get that in Apollo 13 when they launched, you know, the TV networks weren't even broadcasting the launch. They were bored with it by that point. As soon as their lives are in danger and there's a possibility that people might die, everyone is glued to the screen. And there's this kind of weird sort of uncomfortable element that really you know, NASA's real challenge is kind of generating enough interest in what it's doing. It's kind of not losing the attention of the public. And yet the only thing that reliably seems to do that is a disaster or, or ideally a disaster that, you know, can be kind of brought back from the brink at the last minute. Yeah, Apollo 13 is 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 a film about a failure. It's a huge failure. They mm. never make it to the moon. And if you think about all the money and all the expertise and all the time spent getting them into space, building that technology, planning that mission to get them to the moon and they don't get there and they almost die. Mm. 
on the way back. Well, mm. I almost die on the way to the moon. You know, it's a disaster, mm. but it's one of the most uplifting films like out there. Mm. And it's one of, it's a hugely patriotic film. And afterwards, Tom Hanks, you know, went to the White House. And at the time there was legislation that was, you know, going to be um, passed and being debated about whether or not, you know, whether or not the space program NASA should get more money. So it was mm. used as an example, weirdly, despite the fact that it's a film about a disaster, to show how brilliant NASA is, how many smart, intelligent mm. people are employed there, how NASA can just, you know, think outside the box, how creative and how inventive and amazing they are. But it is actually mm. a disaster. It's it's a mistake. It's a bad thing. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not it's not mm. a it's not a film where people successfully achieve their mission. It's interesting because in Constance um, Penley's book, she does actually quote James Gunn, and who's a science fiction writer. And he says that he, mm. in an essay he, he wrote in 1974, he claims that the Challenger disaster was the best thing to ever happen to NASA um, in, a long, wow. in a long time, which is, is mm. pretty unkind, pretty unkind thing to say, really, you know, for the, for the families of the, you know, the, the poor astronauts. But... He mm. says that he predicted the greatest threat to NASA's popularity would be its increasing mon- mundanity. No more poetry, no more human adventure. He says the challenge of disaster and the deaths of seven astronauts have made NASA a more popularly appealing science fiction story, giving back to the agency an aura of risk, heroism and excitement about the unknown. And it's also, you mm. know, quite clear that science journalists, which is where a lot of this stuff gets reported. I mean, obviously, the challenge of disaster was huge international news because of because of the deaths but even anything to do with space it only really ever gets reported when there's either breakthroughs or spectacular failures you know so mm. if there's a rock i mean when the piece of mars rock came back you know everyone was really excited could it be signs that there was once life on mars it, it can't just be a rock <laughs> do you know what i mean it just mm. i mean the, there is science happening all all the time and the science the scientific discoveries happening all the time and NASA's doing a lot of science. But what I noticed is that the stuff that actually gets reported is almost has to be these like miraculous sort of interesting, fantastic, amazing breakthroughs or spectacular failures. So in a way, Mm -hmm. James Gunn is kind of right. You know, I mean, the idea that just going to put people in a shuttle, they're going to send them out into space. It becomes almost quite routine. You know, Uh, there's nothing, there's Mm -hmm. no risk about it. No heroism becomes quite mundane. But if, if if everybody in America is reminded that it's dangerous, that the public is reminded that it, these missions could end in death, then mm. there's almost this heroism attached to it. And it's interesting that Constant Penley is so negative about about Krista McAuliffe mm. and about the teach, teacher in space program. She doesn't seem to like the idea that people have made Krista McAuliffe into a hero into a heroine mm. she yeah she wants people to sort of see the the program for what she thinks it is which is that you know they chose this woman because she was good for pr she seemed i suppose like the model of a republican housewife she was a teacher but she had no interest in science and they couldn't really kind of mm-hmm. convince her to be interested in science and she doesn't seem all that sympathetic to the idea that millions of school kids around america might want to think of this woman as a heroine in order to be able to psychologically mm. deal with her death, which they witnessed yeah. pretty much live on television. And I, I don't mm. know, there is something about mythologizing the past, 
maybe that's the way human beings deal with things. I think it's especially the way in the American public deals with things is mythologizing mm. terrible disasters, turning something that is actually maybe just a tragic, tragic accident. And or, or in the case of China disaster, I suppose there was negligence as well. But tragic accident or some sort of strike of fate or something mm. that was a disaster because of negligence or, or mistakes but turn, turning it into something heroic because it makes it more psychologically easier to deal with. And I think that yeah. in a way that's NASA's definitely probably exploited that. I mean, they had that big memorial, didn't they? To all the, all the people mm. who died, uh, all the astronauts who died, but also anybody who may have died in the process of, I think it's anyone who's died in the process of trying to get to space. So, you know, maybe test pilots who've died. Sure. and stuff like that and there's an aspect of like remembering the dead but there's also this aspect of making this endeavor to get into space a heroic one even though sometimes we question why we're actually doing it yeah and absolutely questioning why we're doing it is one of the is the real challenge that nasa has faced throughout its history i suppose i think it's interesting i guess there's there's two sides to it you know there's the kind of clawing back victory from the jaws of defeat kind of narrative of Apollo 13 you know something like Apollo 13 or you know in a historical context uh, for us Dunkirk you know it's the same thing basically it's a potentially a massive disaster can we kind of escape from it in such a way that we save lives and turn it into a victory and and, you know for in terms of British history and Second World War Dunkirk is absolutely an example of a, a defeat that is somehow converted into a, a victory because you know it could have been so much worse and and the kind of the process of, of pulling back from the complete disaster that was about to unfold is so remarkable and so impressive then i suppose there's the question of you know something like the challenger disaster it's not brought back from the brink do you know what i mean it, it is it is a, there's a reason we call it a disaster you know it was it was and and the consequences were awful but there's this attempt to kind of produce a rhetoric that makes it seem like a kind of noble sacrifice that makes it seem like a kind of heroic endeavor and kind of obscures the the negligence obscures you know what penley sees as the kind of rather crass kind of pr game and star trek is to some extent maybe part of that because you know star trek 4 came out i mean i assume star trek 4 must have been in production when the disaster happened but i think it's kind of interesting it carries this you know a kind of in memoriam uh, sort of title card at the beginning basically saying this film's in memory of the, of the challenger astronaut but it also has this character of Gillian Taylor who to me always feels first of all she feels like a sort of Goldie Horn character in a in a sort of 80s rom-com <laughs> but beyond that she always reminds me somehow of Kristen McCauliffe because she is this character particularly at the end of the film who is the kind of you know she's not an astronaut she's not a kind of you know she i mean she is a scientist so she she you know she she has that over Krista McAuliffe in a sense in that she you know she she is a doctor and you know she has a doctorate or whatever she uh, has some kind of scientific understanding of these whales and so on it's not like she's just the tour guide uh, at the at the cetacean institute but at the same time at the end of the film you know she ends up in the future she ends up going on board a starship she ends up kind of brought into this kind of spacefaring world of star trek very much as a kind of I don't know not not quite a civilian not quite a but it's a sort of token amateur somehow do you know what I mean she kind of is brought into that but in a kind of very positive way and when I watch that film I can't help kind of making that connection probably you know largely because of the fact that the film is dedicated to them and I sort of wonder whether there was any consciousness of that with that character that they were kind of tapping into that and presumably at a time before you know the disaster happened when you know, for whatever Constance Penley says about 
kind of sense that they maybe chose the wrong person that the person they did choose did inspire people it was an exciting program it was actually up until the point that it all went so spectacularly wrong it was actually a, a, a kind of successful move in terms of you can call it pr or you can call it public engagement with science or do you, do you know what i mean you, you can define that in a slightly more positive way and insofar as a big part of nasa's job is not just doing this phenomenally complicated science and maths and making these impossible things possible and the kind of technical heroism of that but their job is also to keep people interested so that it you know it remains a part of our kind of part particularly that you well the american uh kind of identity that this is something that's important to them and also you know more broadly i mean say for us in britain we don't have our own space agency you know so we're kind of piggybacking on nasa to some extent and you know i know we have the european space agency and and, and so on and you know there are there is a more international approach to space now but even so nasa is definitely kind of carrying the torch in some way and they have that sort of responsibility almost yeah and i i mean i think constance penley as well is also a little bit too harsh, to be honest. I think the thing is, any real benefits to humanity being in space, right, will only be felt long after we're dead. Let's be honest. Because mm-hmm. I don't feel any benefit to people being in space right now. I mean, I know they develop and they do experiments up there that may have some sort of real world application now. But any benefits to actual humans being in space, like long term, being in Mars, being, you know, getting to Mars and everything, will probably, will probably either be very old or be dead by the time those sort of mm. you know advantages or those or those benefits will be felt by anybody uh, any humans basically anybody here so you have to find a way of engaging the public now in a space program in a scientific exploration that's high risk that demands huge numbers huge huge amount of money from the public and huge amount of public funding mm. you have to demand a lot of, of taxes basically so you have to kind of engage the public now in something that they may never Mm. really experience or they may never really reap the benefits of themselves and so i think you do need an everyman somewhere you know and i mean Mm. if it's a scientist who's an exceptional pilot that can be positioned as an everyman then that's great and then of course they eventually do become a hero once they've been in space and they've done done what they need to do Mm. and everything but if the scientist or the pilot is somebody that seems extraordinary to begin with and you're thinking, oh, I'll never get to space, or oh, I, I wouldn't. You can't identify with that person because that person can speak twenty languages, and they are like an acrobat mm. and a ballet dancer, and they they're also a, <laughs> you know particle physicist. Then I do sometimes just like basically every Star Trek character. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to identify with that that kind of person, right? So mm. I think you do need an everyman. So I think I think choosing Krista McAuliffe um, wasn't a bad idea, actually. I think it. I think mm. that perhaps maybe the criticism surrounding her going up in the shuttle exists because of the fact that she lost her life, you know, and it seems this mm. incredible, incredible waste that this civilian was killed in this way. But so she wasn't massively interested in science. I don't think that's such a big deal. They had a huge number of people who are interested in science, who work for NASA and who were on the shuttle as well. So I think actually in the future, I hope they do send somebody like a poet to Mars Maybe not on his own. Mm. Maybe they could send a poet with a particle physicist who could probably fix something if it breaks. But I, I do think that we should be sending artists and teachers and poets and people like that into space, maybe when space is slightly safer. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I think that if, 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 
But you know, you know, The Martian would have been a very different story if the, if the guy who got left on Mars was a poet. <laughs> because, you know, that's another story that relies very much on this kind of amazing heroic ingenuity and kind of scientific understanding and everything <laughs> of this guy. And, 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 you know, and also, you know, he's, he's a botanist, isn't he? So he's able to grow his potatoes and everything. I mean, I found, you know, reading the book, but also particularly watching the film, you're just really inspired by this guy and how, how able he is to kind of understand things and come up with new ideas. And so I just sort of feel if you had the poet there, they'd just be kind of sitting on a rock, basically lamenting the fact that they were going to die. <laughs> you know, not doing much about it. Be, be, be very philosophical. Yeah, but they might write some great poetry about it that, you know, next time whoever came back to Mars, that they'd say, oh, well, it's a shame that that guy, you know, we left him there and, and obviously he died because he didn't know what to do. But, you know, at least he, he wrote some nice poems about it. <laughs> it's kind of funny that you should like even bring that up because in the new series of Lost in Space, like everybody, mm-hmm. everybody who's out in space in this particular show has have, have to, yeah. to, to basically go to a new colony to uh, away from mm. Earth to live have um have all had to pass a number of tests and it's not just tests right. it's not just tests like maths and science it's tests to make sure that and technology and engineering and everything it's tests to make sure that they mm-hmm. can uh they have quick reasoning you know in moments of danger that they can actually complete physical tasks tests that they can deal with mm. unconsciousness or they can uh, you know they can deal with quick recall or high pressure or being underwater all this sort of stuff so what you find is you have mm. a whole bunch of people that are very great it's very good at surviving but that doesn't necessarily mean they can all get to get get along with each other or they're incredibly moral and that is something that you do see throughout the show well i guess the next kind of instance of nasa in star trek interestingly after star trek 4 and after the challenger disaster perhaps significantly is the tng episode quite early tng episode the royale where we have this nasa astronaut who is you know found dead in a bed and that's basically you know we don't get to meet him we don't get to know anything about him he's the kind of victim of a disaster himself in a way uh, and obviously it's in the distant past it's kind of you know which which maybe is significant you know we have in early tng's you know stories like the neutral zone about these this kind of pretty you know less evolved earlier sort of ancestor type humans but in this case um you know it's it's a story about this guy who's just um you know he's had this mission that's, that's ended up in a terrible way and and he's you know slowly died in this awful scenario but at the same time it's kind of a distant past and he's just a corpse and it's kind of almost like archaeology by then and then after that i think we have a a real gap as far as i can think in terms of the representation of nasa explicitly in star trek up until star trek first contact i think which is not explicitly about nasa but at the same time it borrows a lot of iconography from nasa if you think of i mean we talked earlier about the Earthrise moment that um you know, we have Zephyr and Cochrane having one of those when he, he 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 has this real kind of epiphany. It's sort of the moment that he seems to kind of shed his crass, boozing, womanizing uh, ways and and sort of reach towards being this kind of uh, man of destiny in the future. Somehow, is this moment where he he has this kind of Earthrise experience. Even the design of the of the Phoenix, you know, it very much evokes those kind of early rocket images, the, the way all the different parts detach in space and fall away. You know, we've seen this a million times with the kind of, uh, you know, any films that are about real life space exploration. You know, we see, as I, as I mentioned earlier, Troy doing the kind of mission controller role. So, so you have this kind of iconography of real world NASA space exploration. But what you also have is is something which I think is kind of a new direction for star trek at that point and something that i i get the feeling comes very much from bran and braga um because it kind of ties into a lot of his future work 
which is that and you and you get this slightly in the royale i suppose in that the royale is from an astronaut in the future and the united states has a different number of states and that sort of thing but it's not really it, it, it that's it, that's sketched in such a sort of basic way that it doesn't make any impact but what you have in first contact is this idea of the kind of future history of star trek you know what is our our future but star trek's history and this idea of um when to the journey um Shah and tristan the original host of to the journey were talking about some of these voyager episodes they talked about this idea of futuristic nostalgia and the idea that characters within the star trek universe can have nostalgia for these events that for us haven't happened yet but are these kind of uh epochal historical events and it's sort of i think first contact kind of marks this moment where star trek begins to be interested in its own kind of prehistory and particularly in terms of space exploration so you know whether that's the phoenix in first contact whether that's the voyager episode one small step which is about this early uh, nasa mars mission and, and the guy who goes missing from that and is very much focused on the kind of what that means for the members of the crew what that means for chakotay for example and and, and the, the sort of journey of that episode is basically seven of nine learning to have this kind of historical reverence that you know that we see for example captain picard uh explaining to data when he says he wants to he wants to touch the phoenix you know that this is a part of their history that is deeply meaningful for them somehow well in friendship one both harry and tom at the beginning they talk about how they learn about the pro they learned about the probe in school I think Tom says he built a model of it and Harry can memorize the the actual message that Friendship One is broadcasting about Earth. So mm. it's this idea that there's whole generations of Starfleet officers who, when they were in, I guess, primary school or they were like preschool or whatever, were learning all about mm. the early space travel, which isn't actually our space travel. So it's not like you're saying, it's not, mm. it's not our space history. It's the space history of Star Trek, which is supposed to be our space history, like a hundred years from now or whatever it is. So, mm. I, I yeah, I thought that was really interesting. The idea that everybody immediately knows what Friendship One is, and what's interesting as well is that this really struck me as strange: is that Voyager has been lost for seven years, and they're making their way home, right? But it's still going to take a long time to get home. But Starfleet still mm. thinks Friendship One is so important that it's going to send voyager off on a mission to look for it <laughs> and i'm like mm. why would you do that let them come home <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's because it's a it's a part of star trek history isn't it so you know mm. for starfleet this is like early you know early space space exploration history and they and they mm. you know they want they want the data or i guess they want the actual probe itself so that is a strange experience i think to watch on television because it makes you feel nostalgic as the viewer and you're like hang on i'm nostalgic about something that's hasn't happened and you know yeah. i mean it's fictional world so it's never going to happen but you almost feel a little bit like it might because you know it's like it's like yeah. it's like every year this first contact day right which is the day that the vulcans come and make contact with humans and i see mm. countless jokes on the internet people tweet you know happy first contact day and people post pictures of of like a Vulcan up on you know on, on the social media, and I hear countless jokes. Only fifty four years to go. Or yeah, whatever, and yeah. countless countless um jokes about how the Vulcans are flying up ahead over overhead now, and they basically have taken mm. a look at Earth and realised that we're not advanced enough yet. You know, and people are like, mm. oh, can't can't mm. they come down and sort of sort out the international politics or whatever, or the climate yeah. or whatever? You know, all the problems that we have done here. Beam up Trump. Beam up Trump. <laughs> Solve climate change, but um. 
but yeah so so it's almost like we all kind of believe it but we know we don't believe it because it's not true but it's also like it does seem mm. like it's part of our history but it's not part of our history either so it's a very strange experience mm. to to watch first contact and also these episodes that you're talking about what was interesting i thought as well about one small step mm-hmm. is that how disinterested or how confused seven of nine was Mm. and how by the end of the episode she kind of understands it and she kind of admits i guess she kind of she's kind of understanding that she wouldn't even be here she wouldn't even exist if there Mm. wasn't this desire to reach other planets if there wasn't this early space travel so almost everything that you see in the star trek universe is because of first contact it is because of cochrane you know it is because of people launching probes it is because of people going out on missions to try and find mars and all that sort of thing so i can see how nasa would really want to tap into that what they're saying is if we continue with our with our work if we continue with our with our scientific exploration of space we will end up someday in a future where there will be humans in space on a regular basis Mm. and we may even meet intelligent life and that mm. is what ca- captures the public imagination and what captures the public's imagination is what captures their support and what captures their support is what politi- politicians listen to and then that's what yeah. politicians then vote on where to spend the funding and where to spend the money and they fund scientific projects which is strange because you think you should fund scientific projects purely for scientific reasons and I'm sure they do that as well but if the public's mm. engaged it's, it's like icing on the cake <laughs> so so yeah. the more people watch Star Trek and the more people love science fiction and the more NASA can associate itself with science fiction, the more engagement and also the more support they have and the longer it is that they will have the ability to go out and do their scientific study and exploration in space. There's a series on Netflix called Mars, which I would really recommend. It's very, it's really interesting. And it's um, produced by Ron Howard, who was the one who the, the man who directed Apollo 13. And it's a strange series because it's part drama, but also part documentary. And it has a lot of talking heads who are actual scientists and also interviews with astronauts. And it has a whole lot of information about NASA in it. But it's actually a fictional drama set in the future where people have landed on Mars. And there's some bad things that go wrong in the mission, as well as some good things. But it's clear, it's it's very entertaining but it does also feel like a PR exercise to design to get people mm. interested in the idea of going to Mars. Like that's the next big thing. Mm. Let's try and get there. And NASA's trying to get people geared up to be interested in it. But we're just still too mm. far away for it to happen tomorrow. So people are also not interested enough because the public has a very short yeah. attention span when it comes to, you know, what's the newest thing. So we'll see what happens. And maybe that's one reason as well why in these Star Trek episodes we need to see our star, you know, our heroic future Star Trek characters really interested in this kind of, you know, what is our history and what is, what is their history and what is our future potentially. Because the weird thing is they react like fans, you, you know, like, I mean, you know, people talk about Star Trek fans being obsessive. I mean, you know, Captain Picard wanting to touch the Phoenix. We've got, you know, like you say, Tom and Harry, who, who know this history like the back of their hands. We've got in one small step, Chakotay, who is so obsessed with this, with this Mars mission and the history of it. This is another episode where Chakotay develops for the purposes of a single episode, some kind of all-consuming uh, passion for a particular thing because they can't think of what else to do with his character. <laughs> but um, in some ways... I sort of felt like 
watching One Small Step this week, I had more sympathy with Seven of Nine because Chicote actually behaves really irresponsibly. He's so obsessed with getting his hands on this capsule and sort of finding out more about this bit of history. He actually disobeys Janeway's orders. He puts them all in danger. You know, as Seven of Nine says, basically, you've probably got us killed, essentially, for this bit of history. I mean, he's kind of almost sort of fetishized this historical object to such an extent that he's he's obsessed with it to a an unhealthy degree, almost. And of course, you know, it being a Voyager episode, it all kind of works out and they, you, you know, they all survive it and, and Seven has a learning experience and and sort of understands the importance of history and the importance <laughs> of, you know, nostalgia and all these you kind of things. You don't but sound I mean, impressed. Actually, I felt like, well, I just sort of thought like Chakotay's fandom in this episode leads in, in a slightly dangerous direction. I'm not that sure about it. But I think more broadly, you know, what you're saying is, is this idea of, of, you know, saying, okay, so what NASA is doing now in the real world is going to lead to the Star Trek future. And I suppose, you know, when Constance Penley was looking at it, they were these two things that were kind of smashed together with a slash in the middle. They're very separate. Almost what what this sort of later Star Trek is doing, and particularly this, this kind of, we might say this kind of Braga Star Trek, is bridging that gap, is building that continuity. And in the same way as... You know, you see on those kind of like the wall of the observation lounge with the different ships called Enterprise, there's a continuity, there's a line there. That reaches its kind of most striking manifestation in a way in Enterprise. In the, you know, if you think of the credit sequence of Enterprise, you start with the kind of earliest explorers on Earth and you go through all these kind of images. You know, you have the Wright brothers, but you've also got largely images of NASA. I mean, I'd say probably at least half of that title sequence is NASA or NASA-related imagery, very much sort of staking a claim that this is a show almost about the future of NASA, and then quite seamlessly sort of blends from that into the kind of Star Trek imagery, you know, with, you know, the Phoenix and with these kind of early warp vessels and then moving into the Enterprise. And the way that it's constructed that sequence, you know, if you can kind of ignore the music and just focus on the visuals, it's very much telling you this story that, you know, this is one thing this is one continuous story and obviously in the real world we're kind of stuck somewhere you know wherever it is like two-thirds or or three quarters or whatever it is of the way through that story but basically there's no discontinuity it's it's all kind of one one thing and I think that's quite interesting they sort of chose to do that and with Enterprise they were obviously very consciously it was a prequel they were going back to an earlier time and it's a show which certainly feels very much obsessed with NASA, but not just obsessed with NASA, but the early days of NASA. I mean, there was an interesting episode of of Warp 5 uh, that they did recently, which I'd recommend anyone go and listen to, looking at the movie The Right Stuff, which is about the Mercury uh, project and the kind of earliest attempts to get Americans up into space and looking at that in terms of enterprise, because that was quite explicitly an influence that they were that they were taking. Uh, Archer, for example, was seen as a Chuck Yeager type, and Chuck Yeager plays a big role in the right stuff as one of these kind of heroic pilots. And and then when you get to the episode First Flight, a lot of the kind of storyline there is very reminiscent of some of the kind of the test pilot stories and the kind of um, various elements of that. And certainly just more generally, Enterprise seems to be a show that is almost about NASA as much as it's about Star Trek. Yeah, and the first um, pu- the first episode of Enterprise, Broken Bow, they don't actually like each other all that much, do they? I mean, Paul and doesn't like mm. Trip, and um, uh, and Archer doesn't like Paul, and I think even Malcolm makes some sort of derogatively derogative statement about Trip or something, and that made me really think of the right mm. stuff because actually at the beginning of, mm. of the all the 
sort of American pilots being kind of thrown together. And actually, they're not all pilots. Some of them are from the Air Force. Well, I guess a lot of them are pilots, but some of them are from the Air Force and some of them are from the Navy, aren't they? So they actually aren't even from the same sort of military background. And they don't all like each other. In fact, there's real competition amongst mm. all of them. And that made me think a little bit about the, some of the early episodes of the Enterprise where there's this sort of tension between the people on on, on, on the ship because it's it's the first sort of proper kind of deep space Starfleet. Well, I guess it's not really Starfleet at the time, is it? I guess it's kind of early Starfleet, you know, mission. Mm. So I actually thought it was very much like some of the stuff and the right stuff. You know, it's very connected. Mm. And yes, Warp 5 did a podcast about this, so I would urge people to go and listen to that. It was really good. One of the things that you were talking about, trying to make it out that sort of NASA, well, NASA trying to sort of link to this fact that the the future might be, we might have a space-dwelling public, you know, like like in, like in Star Trek. We might actually have mm. people on planets, other planets. We might have people on space stations and stuff if we continue to explore space and and try and get there safely now is that not that long ago nasa commissioned a series of posters about space travel and these are fictional posters sort of designed to it's basically it's an interesting artistic take on science fiction essentially commissioned by a space fact organization so they're like mock travel advertisements mm. for other planets you know so there's there's one mm. in particular that's um kepler 16b it's a little bit like a gas giant like Saturn um, and it's d- depicted as a terrestrial planet and it sort of says something like where your where your shadow is is twinned and has a picture of a, of, 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 of a human standing there on the planet and because of the of the different celestial bodies all around um, Kepler the person's shadow they have two shadows and it's there's like there's like a, mm-hmm. a statement next to it. it says like Luke Skywalker's planet Tatooine and Star Wars you know, Kepler 16b orbits a pair of stars. And so they're actually mm. linking it to Tatooine in Star Wars. So Kepler mm. 16b, I think, is a real star. <laughs> I think it is. I'm mm. not that mm. great with my stargazing, but I think it is. Occasionally, mm. occasionally I mistake Mars for a plane flying into Heathrow. So, <laughs> you know, the other day I was like, is that Mars or is that a plane? Um, and sometimes I think, or, you know, is it the Enterprise? Or is it, the Enterprise? Or is it UFO? <laughs> or is it, is it the yeah. moon? No, it's not the moon. Okay. but So I'm not great with my stargazing. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But I thought that was really interesting. Mm. Like NASA is trying to make the public dream and imagine a future where you could go on a grand tour of all the planets, just like people used to go in the Victorian mm. era, used to go on a grand tour of Europe. And mm. that, yet again, works perfectly for Star Trek because... That's exactly what Star Trek is. It's kind of what Starfleet is, really. I mean, obviously they have they mm. have a mission. They have missions in Starfleet. It's a bit more bigger point. It's a bit more moral, isn't it? Really, there's the Federation and the Prime Directive and everything. But it is almost like going mm. on a grand tour. You know, you you get assigned to a, to a starship, and you're off to see the galaxy. And it's interesting that it's connected to. I mean, just looking at the development of Enterprise, one of the things, if you look at the interviews, say with Rick Berman around the time that that show was first premiering, there was very much this kind of conscious idea of trying to get away from what they'd been doing with Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And basically, what Rick Berman said was that he felt that with both Deep Space Nine and Voyager, 
you had a situation where you had a captain and a crew to some extent who were in a situation not of their choosing. So, you know, Deep Space Nine literally opened with, you know, the, okay, he was a commander, with, with Cisco uh, being sent somewhere that he didn't want to be. Voyager sent, began with Janeway being sent somewhere she didn't want to be, the Delta Quadrant. And, and yes, their feelings changed in various ways over time. But essentially, neither of them was an explorer. They weren't exploring strange new worlds. They weren't doing the kind of whole Star Trek mantra. And so one of the reasons for doing Enterprise was to try and get back to that idea, to get back to that idea of kind of of being explorers again. But there was also this kind of idea of trying to get back to the original series. Um, And the way that Rick Berman expressed that was that particularly through the character of Jonathan Archer, he saw him as, he said he wanted Archer to be a little bit of Captain Kirk and a little bit of Chuck Yeager. So, you know, again, there's that kind of idea that going back into Star Trek's history in terms of going back to the original series also means going back into NASA's history or kind of prehistory, really, because uh, Jaeger, in fact, wasn't involved with the with the Mercury uh, project. He was kind of um, noticeably excluded from it in a sense, but he was involved in the kind of earlier uh, test flights and so on. And I suppose it's interesting with Enterprise that, um, you know, in terms of the iconography of Enterprise, in terms of the design, the uniforms and everything, you know, um, Herman Zimmerman, the designer, uh, Bob Blackman, the costume designer and so on, were all very much inspired by contemporary NASA and looking at, I mean, you know, if you look, just look at the uniforms and Enterprise, they look like something NASA astronauts could be wearing, you know, these jumpsuits with zippers and um, pockets and all these kind of things. But at the same time, the show was kind of looking for its kind of key moment in NASA history. It wasn't so much NASA in, you know, whatever it was, the 2001, it was NASA in 19... 19- when was Mercury? Early 60s, I guess. That was the kind of, seemed like the pivotal moment. Again, it was sort of going back, it was going back to before TOS in the show, but it was literally going back to if TOS represented the Apollo project, it was going back to before that time, it was going back to the Mercury project. I think the Enterprise succeeded a lot in a lot of different areas, especially with invoking early Star Trek history. And also, like you said, the sort of spirit of these early test pilots like Jaeger, who I think broke... A speed barrier. I think he broke one of the sound barriers. He was mm. anyway. He 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 was one of Mac one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. though he didn't yeah. go into space, he was obviously incredibly mm. an incredibly talented pilot to be able to do that and not crash. So though it is, it does invoke the spirit of that, and it does invoke you know some of the spirit of space exploration and NASA. I don't think that's enough for it to sustain to sustain it for a whole three series so i think that's why yeah. or even longer than just one series really to be honest so i think that's why they had to towards the end of the well, well halfway through they had to introduce some of the politics and some of the conflict into yeah. it and i wonder if after a while they the writers actually realized that they do need a little bit of deep space nine a little bit of voyager a little bit of next generation yeah otherwise that's interesting you I mean you can't i don't think you can have a three or four year series about astronauts or pilots just breaking one barrier after another just doing things for the first Mm. time over and over and over again there's got to be some human drama you're right some emotion maybe you're right i think i mean i think i always felt one of my hesitations about enterprise was the kind of this kind of novelty of doing everything you know using the transporter for the first time doing this for the first time the read alert you know i found a lot of that a bit cringy and i suppose so there's that, there's the kind of in-jokey element of, oh, you know, these things that were established in TOS and have carried on throughout Star Trek haven't been invented yet, so we have to invent them. 
But there is also, it's interesting you talk about like breaking barriers and, you know, Jaeger is this guy who broke the, the sound barrier. You know, we see in Enterprise this, this obsession with speed, you know, the speed of the engine. It's the Warp 5 engine. That's, that's what the whole show is kind of built around, this concept of, you know, it's not just going at warp. I mean, Zephyrin Cochran went at warp. This is going at warp 5, which is when we're finally going to be able to kind of go somewhere and explore. And even in First Flight, which is the kind of most kind of right stuffy Enterprise episode, I suppose, it's all about breaking the warp two speed barrier. So it's again that kind of idea. And you know, after they broke the Mach one barrier, then they broke they they did break the warp two barrier. Crossfield, Scott Crossfield, I think was the, the one who broke the uh, warp two barrier. Do you mean as, do you mean uh, Mac? Do you mean Mac two? Crossfield class. Do you mean what did warp I say? Two. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> if only no, Crossfield didn't. As far, as far as we know, we didn't. would have met Unless, the Balkans like, that already. Guy in TOS, he was beamed up. <laughs> Exactly, he was beamed up at the... We would, you're right, you know, we'd have met them long since, yeah. Sorry, Scott Crossfield, uh, who who broke the Mac 2 barrier uh, and is remembered in the, the Crossfield class, which is what Discovery is. So, you know, sort of even going right to the to most recent iteration of Star Trek, we have these kind of, these kind of references. But, I mean, so I think it's interesting. I think you're right that, in a sense, Enterprise had this idea of doing the right stuff meets Star Trek. They were quite committed to it to begin with. But maybe gradually they started to realise they kind of had to do, they sort of had to do more than that. And maybe that's one of the issues with the early seasons of Enterprise is that there's a sense that they're kind of relying too much on this kind of um, kind of prequely stuff and not really not really doing enough that's that's kind of new somehow. Um, but I have to say, you know, I, th- I think episodes like First Flight, I mean, that's a very popular episode. I can understand why. I think it's quite a, a fun, interesting um dramatic episode it's quite nice to see you know i do feel it's a shame in some ways they didn't get to tell that you know year-long story on earth that brennan braga wanted to do and that we didn't get to see a bit more of of, of the kind of of the sort of project you know of kind of project enterprise of the whole kind of nx side of it um as opposed to like quite quickly going into space and dealing with klingons and dealing with kind of recognizable things but with this massive caveat that we're not meant to know anything about any anything yet which kind of creates, for me anyway, creates a bit of a dramatic problem for Enterprise because they're frequently dealing with things where the audience knows more about it than they do. And I think that is problematic often. For me anyway, Enterprise works better when it's doing, you know, when it kind of gets away from that, when they get away from the Klingons or they get away from kind of, you know, sort of well-trodden Star Trek ground that they're kind of limited in how they can approach it. But I suppose it's interesting, you know, as a, as a point of comparison, looking at Enterprise and Discovery, which again, of course, is a prequel, uh, to TOS, a more sort of immediate prequel. And again, you know, certainly invokes the space program, not, not just NASA, but, uh, other international space programs in terms of the, the naming of things. I mean, you have things like, for example, the concept of a mission specialist, which is what, what Burnham is, is, uh, is a concept borrowed from NASA. You have the naming, you know, the Buran, the, the ship that, um, Captain Lorca captained before that's been destroyed. The Buran is, um, what is it? It's, it's something to do with the Soviet space program. So it's a cosmonaut um, thing that's being referenced there. The Shenzhou is the name of the Chinese space program's capsules. So they're kind of continuing this idea of sort of borrowing from real world space exploration, at least to feed into the kind of naming of things. And of course, Discovery, you know, Discovery is named after one of the shuttles. I mean, I remember when they had that reveal and they were going to ne- decide what the what the show was going to be called. I was thinking it's going to be one of the, you know, it's going to be one of the other space shuttles. They ca- it can't be Enterprise, obviously, because we know it can't be Enterprise. But 
uh, they're going to go with other, one of the other shuttle names. And they didn't go with Challenger. Maybe that would have been too difficult. They went with um, Discovery. And, you know, and sure enough, that turned out to be the case. So I suppose in Discovery, it seems to me there's definitely this kind of real world spacey background there. But I'm kind of curious. I mean, what do you think? How does it's less obvious to me how that show engages with the kind of real world history and, you know, specifically the history of NASA compared to other Star Trek that we've seen. I wonder whether, although it is a prequel and it is going back, somehow it's it's kind of avoiding those trappings that maybe Voyager and particularly Enterprise kind of got seduced by to some extent. I feel like Discovery is moving further away from sort of real world NASA history because it's invoking Star Trek history, you know, just the the list of the the captains that we saw on a screen at one point in one episode, uh, the, you know, right, the fact yeah. that we're seeing like that we saw the Enterprise at the end of end of the, of the end of the first series, and you know, the fact that Sarek's in it and stuff like that. So, I think for me, I feel like it's 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 paying more attention to Star Trek history than NASA history. Can I feel that actually Star Trek is getting further away from NASA as we start to? Re- to have a more international community in space rather than it being these two superpowers in a space race with each other. I'm talking about Russia and America, of course. You know, as we start to get further and further away from the idea of one nation dominating space or the idea of conflict amongst nations up in space and we start to get closer and closer to the idea of international cooperation away from the planet, then I think we're starting to get into perhaps maybe a less dominated, a less NASA dominated awareness of space travel. We're starting to get more, perhaps maybe into a more of a mm. discovery type of science fiction, you know, where you have lots of different nationalities on, on, on space mm. missions and you have, and I think, I think like what we were saying, you know, about having people in space who aren't necessarily scientists, you know, I mean, parking back to Chris McCauley, you know, NASA for years, and this is one of the strange things has never really tried to, well, that we know of, publicly investigate like human relationships in space. But there is this idea that if you're going to send people to Mars, the best, it's going to be a long, long trip. The best thing to do would be to send a couple, you know, send two people who, who are in a relationship or two people can, who can, who would be in close, close contact with each other, who can rely on each other and would work well together. And the, in the first few early days of NASA, there was no indication that the people that they sent up there were really going to work well together. It was basically a collection of individuals who had the skills, I suppose, to go into space. But now there's this idea of, you know, who who's going to work well with others and who's who with the combinations of people that are going to work together. And I suppose they have to work well with each other, but there's, if they're forced mm. into that situation. But now, you know, you can go on YouTube and NASA has like a massive presence on YouTube, like in terms of lots and lots of videos. And they have videos of astronauts doing a whole sort, a whole load of things that, that we sort of saw in discovery, you know, having, having mm. a pizza night or in discovery, they have this, they have this, this party, don't they? On, on one of the decks, there's, there's, there's scenes of people running in the corridors, getting exercise. I mean, you do see this in next generation as well and other, other series, but it's, it's especially emphasized in, in, in discovery there's i would say maybe not explicit but there's some you know sort of sex scenes i suppose and there is this idea that people are starting to question like you know you're going to send up both men and women into space like are people going to have sex in space and it's something that nasa has never really wanted to explore has been quite prudish about but there really should be some sort of i would say probably some sort of investigational work into this because if 
it's quite possible it will happen. Do you know what I mean? So, (laughs) you know, and and especially when it comes to women, it comes to contraceptive, you have to think like how women are going to prevent themselves from getting pregnant in places where it may not be healthy or safe to have a baby. So like, Mm. I guess in a way, discovery for me feels much more about, it is obviously the storyline, it's during wartime, but it feels much more to me about Mm. a much more international community it feels much more updated mm. idea of what being in space might be like uh, with people doing all sorts of different things. Well, the other day when I was talking to Justin, Amy, who are on Earl Grey about the episode Schisms, uh, which is a Next Generation episode, one of the things that we noticed is this, there was a bunch of civilians in that episode. And I questioned, I said, why would there be civilians on a Starfleet vessel? And Justin said, well, you know, sometimes you might have civilian contractors, you might have a scientist who's a civilian, so Star Trek has seen this. They've seen the civilian in space. And it, I mean, it's, I think it's only a matter of time before they do, we do see, we're already seeing astronauts do things that are much more civilian-like, you know, showing videos on YouTube of how you wash your hair in zero gravity. You know, I think it's only a matter of time. Or like before the, the guy playing, playing David Bowie on the guitar. Exactly, exactly. I think it's only a matter of time before there is another bunch of civilians that get well not bunch but there'll be probably an, another civilian that's sent up um into space and it pro- might not be nasa it might be some other space agency it might be chinese it might be international or it might be commercial as well it could be virgin you know virgin sending leo dicaprio up in space or whatever you know whether whether he'll go as a single person or, or with a partner we don't know <laughs> i mean I, I was interested when you were talking about the idea of sending couples and, and you know then the challenges would be you know dealing with contraception things like that i was thinking you know from a starfleet perspective you might think it's a good idea to send a couple but you just want to make sure that one of them isn't secretly a klingon because you know then (laughs) shenanigans can ensue but I, i think you're right i think you're right definitely with discovery we we get a sense of a kind of i suppose you might call it uh i mean obviously star trek is is post nasa insofar as nasa no longer exists but at the same time maybe star trek has kind of had this kind of fascination with with NASA, this kind of symbiotic relationship with NASA. Maybe you're right that really in Discovery, what we're seeing is the kind of post-NASA era of space exploration making its way into Star Trek. So there is much more of an awareness of other space agencies and of other kind of... The fact that space is a... You know, space doesn't just belong to America, in a sense. I mean, I know America, you know, it's the Americans who planted the Stars and Stripes on the moon, uh, but there is this kind of sense that ultimately humankind's future in space is a sort of international project and in a sense that does go all the way back to the original series in that we have this idea of kind of the un in space and the un kind of model with you know the russian and the and the um person of japanese heritage uh, uh, and so on but at the same time i think you're right there is a definitely a different sort of feeling to the kind of emphasis that we see in discovery and to those kind of reference points that they are very consciously drawing on, you know, the Chinese space agency, the Russian, uh, the Soviet space program, you know, drawing on these kind of other um, influences as well as the American ones. So before we sign off for today, um, I wanted to ask you a question, which is you personally, would you ever, if they offered you, if NASA came to you today, knocked on your door and said, Duncan Barrow, we want to take you up into space as a writer, as a podcaster, we want you to podcast from the International Space Station. Would you do it? <laughs> live. Primitive culture live uh, from the International Space Station. I don't know. You know, I'd love to. I'd love to say that I would. The problem is, 
you know, I'm scared of flying. <laughs> <laughs> I find it hard enough, you know, taking a flight to France. I mean, on the other hand, so was Zephyrin Cochran and he managed it. So I suppose, you know, maybe if the temptation is, is exciting enough, then <laughs> maybe you just kind of have to conquer those fears and go with it. But, you know, I'd like to think that I'd say yes, but it would definitely be a difficult decision. What about you, Clara? I think if someone gave me the opportunity to go into space, I think I would. But I think for me, the, mm. the, the, the thing that I'd probably like the most is um, going up, doing a quick orbit of the Earth and coming back down again. I don't think I need to go to the space station. I certainly don't need to set foot on the moon. You know, I'm fine just going up, seeing the Earth from space and coming back down again. And I think I probably would probably be sick on the way up or the sick on the way down just because I get car sick. I can see myself. And so it would probably be a humiliating experience, but a beautiful one as well because I see <laughs> the Earth from space. <laughs> Well, you know, the weird thing is on aeroplanes, they always used to have those sit bags, didn't they? And I, I think they still do have them on aeroplanes, but you never see anyone using them. And I, I've always wondered, why is that? Is it is it that, you know, the turbulence is like the design of planes has got so that these things don't affect people as much as so they aren't throwing up the whole time? Or is it just that we still got used to the idea of air travel? But I mean, I think you're right. That's That's going to be a phenomenon. I mean, I was thinking, you know, if that's all you want. You know, it may be in a few years' time, you know, if you've got the money for it, uh, <laughs> Richard Branson will, will fly you up there. But whether or not you and Leonardo DiCaprio will be, you know, throwing up into each other's laps oh, or not on the way up or down. That's a mental image. Remains to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I mean, um, it's been fun talking about NASA today and uh, the relationship between NASA and Star Trek. But that's not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to some of the other things that you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm. To the journey! You really did reorient my thinking about the mess hall. Now I need to rewatch every scene with the mess hall and, and try to visualize Neelix's kitchen as the captain's dining room. I just assumed that when, when she said, this used to be my private dining room, that she meant the whole mess hall, like the entire room that they're in. That would be gigantic. How have I watched Voyager for what is now 23 years and not realized this? The 602 Club. He can be soft and caring and then suddenly be funny and sarcastic, but he's, you know, it's sort of that scene where he's with his um, therapist in the car and she's supposed to be evaluating him and he's saying, uh, she goes, you know, I, I love this just as much as the next girl, but, and then she said something like, who's that girl? Oh, the next girl. The next girl. <laughs> the one who clearly is better than you. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. You know, Admiral Cornwall, like, let's discuss this more and, you know, take off your comm badge. Like, who would do that to an admiral? And so it's like, how did he have that, you know, knowledge? Warp 5. Good thing they had those peaches at the start of the episode. Good thing oh, he know. convinced her to bite it. The moral of Check the story is always eat your peaches. Mm-hmm. Yes. Chekhov's gun, I'm telling you. Chekhov's peach. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. 
You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation and the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We are Primitive Culture and we are your hosts. My name is Clara Cook and you can find me on Twitter at MC. My co-host is Duncan Barrett, and you can find Duncan on Twitter, at Barrett's Books. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. Now I'd like to express a big thank you to our executive producer, Amy Nelson. You can find Amy Nelson on the Earl Grey podcast on Trek.fm. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture, a Trek.fm podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended